So in this series, we have been talking about work and calling. In the very first message, we talked about the goodness of work, that God is a worker. He created us to work. This was something even before sin came into this world. So work is not a curse. But then Adam and Eve sinned. We live now in a fallen world. But work is not the result of the fall. It's futility in work that is the result of the fall. And then in last week's message, we talked about this idea of our callings. And we pointed out that when we talk about vocation, that actually means calling. And that we have a variety of different callings. We have, we have one ultimate calling that as Christians we know is above us. And that's to, to know and to love Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And to follow him in all that we do. And this encompasses all of life. There's no little carved out kingdoms where we can step in that and do our own thing. He's Lord of all of our life. And underneath that ultimate calling, we have these subordinate callings where we're serving Christ by fulfilling these other callings that he has for us. And that can be callings in in the workplace that sometimes we would describe as being our vocations uh, as far as work and career and how we make money and put bread on the table. And there's other callings too that we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. The title for this message is Good Work, the Biblical Work ethic. This is kind of a play off of something you may have heard. Sometimes it's called the the Protestant work ethic. There was a sociologist, Max Weber, that coined that term, Protestant work ethic. And I think many people actually get that wrong as far as what what it means. Sometimes it's been described like this, that, well, the Protestant work ethic, uh, what that means for people is that in order to know that you're elect, that you have to work really hard And if you work really hard at your job and you're successful, uh, that's how you know that you're blessed and that's how you know that you're elect. And there are people that think that that's what Protestant theology teaches and they don't understand uh, the Protestant theology that came out of the Reformation. Uh, The Protestant theology that came out of the Reformation teaches us that we are totally depraved. We are completely dependent on God. We cannot do anything good in and of ourselves. And that it's not a matter of our material prosperity that shows that we're elect or not. Uh, you can know, in one sense, if, if you are chosen by if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and turn to him. And then there will be uh, a change in your heart inside out that happens. But what did happen with the Protestant work ethic and why they noticed that there was a lot of prosperity and a different view of work in these uh, Protestant nations in, in the West, I think did have to do with things that we've been talking about, with this change in worldview about work. As we've said, many people in the Middle Ages viewed calling or vocation as just something for pastors and monks and nuns. They had a special higher calling, but the lowly common people, you know, they weren't, they weren't called to work. They just, you know, they had to do their ordinary jobs. Whereas the reformers, going back to scripture, taught that all of work is honorable. All type of, of, of work, uh, legitimate work is, is good and promotes human flourishing and is actually God working through us to benefit our neighbors. In the sense that, as it has been said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. And he works through us to benefit others and to benefit society as we're working. And so this changes your view of work. 
And also the Bible teaching things uh, such as um, hard work, self-discipline, planning, living within your means, that these are good biblical virtues. So if rightly understood, this shouldn't just be a, a Protestant thing. This is a biblical thing because Scripture teaches this all the way through. So we're going to start talking about this in this message. I won't be able to say everything that can be said, and God willing, Pastor Nick will continue this, uh, discussing our calling to work in next week's message as well. But the first point I want to make in this message is this. We are called, point one, work hard to earn your own living. Scripture teaches us we're to work hard and to earn our own living. In a Bible study, we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, and in 1 Thessalonians 5, the main passage we're going to look at is from 2 Thessalonians, but I want to quick show you something from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In there, 5.14, it says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Now, the word that the ESV translates as idle might be translated differently in uh, a Bible if you're using a different one. It might be translated as disorderly or undisciplined. However, I do think that idle is the best translation here. For one, this word is also used in Greek society, was used in Greek society for those who did not show up to work. And also, so it seems to be that as Paul is writing to these uh, believers in, in Thessalonica who were, had only very recently become Christians, uh, it seems that as he was teaching them, uh, and one of the things he was teaching them was about the return of Christ, there were some that used it as an opportunity to say, well, if Christ is going to return and if he's coming back soon, I don't really want to work. I don't need to. I'll just uh, kind of get some food and stuff from other people and take it easy because maybe Jesus is coming back real soon. And so Paul told them, hey, admonish the idol. Uh, tell them, no, you need to be productive. You, need, you can't just be mooching off of other people. So he says that in, in 1 Thessalonians, but it seems that they didn't really get the message because when you get to 2 Thessalonians, he has to deal with them in, with even stronger language. So if you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians, this will be our main passage, chapter 3, starting with verse 6, if you're using the Pew Bible, page 990, Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this is not a suggestion. Paul is saying uh, this is a command. If you thought before that I was just giving you a helpful hint, no, this is something to be taken seriously. That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you the tradition that you received from us. Now Paul is saying this has gone beyond trying to merely correct you. He's saying this is an issue of church discipline at this point. That if somebody is not heeding this, there can come a point where it's like you need to uh, move away from them and what they're doing for their own good. He said this is not what I taught you. This is not the, the tradition, the teaching that you received from us. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. 
because we were not idle when we were with you. If you're looking at our example, remember that we weren't idle. We weren't sitting around when we were, when we were with you in Thessalonica, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, okay, that's showing hard work, toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden on any of you. He didn't want to just be a burden taking from them. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul is pointing out that, yeah, it would have been technically, it would have been okay if they would have uh, fed him and taken care of him as uh, someone that is ministering to him. He would have had that right, but he didn't claim that because he wanted to be careful that they would take the right example from this. And so when he was there, he was working on top of the ministry that, that he was doing so they wouldn't get the wrong idea. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Now get this. This is his command. If anyone will not work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And catch that in verse 10. If you won't work, he didn't say if you can't work. He said if you won't work, if you can, but you're not doing this, here's the rule, here's the solution for this. Well, you don't eat. You're not going to get handouts from other people. And then verse 11, he tells them, quit being busybodies, and it said, get busy with doing something productive. And Paul commands and encourages them this in the Lord, and then finally says, earn your own living. And that's why the main point here, as I summarize this, is, is work hard to earn your own living. This is the calling that he, that he has for us. He's saying, don't be a mooch. He's teaching here that there is, there is no free lunch. And I think this is one thing in our world today we have to realize, we have to communicate, we have to accept is that the world does not owe you a living. Just the fact that, that we exist doesn't mean that everyone else needs to work in order so that you can have all the things that you need. Of course, we want everyone to have food. Of course we do. But free food is, is not a, a right not a right in the sense that, that other things are, where you have a right to command that other people feed you while you could do things, but you don't. So the main point here is be willing to, to toil and to labor to earn your own living. And this includes other ideas, to, to work smart. It doesn't just mean working physically hard, but mentally hard too. There's certain things that can make it go easier if you make good decisions in your working. I think overall, this includes ideas of, of, of savings. They're working now and earning things that you have stuff put away for later on. And if there's times where you can't work, or if there's re retirement later on, making good decisions with your resources. And I think when we look at the whole biblical picture, it also includes preparing yourself to be able to do productive work. And that's a big part of it. Think of it, we know that Paul was a tent maker, and he probably didn't just one day decide, well, I gotta do something, I'll, I'll just try really hard to make tents. I think he apprenticed and he learned this, this art of tent making and it took practice 
and it took, it took training to do this. But because he put in that effort of the training, he gave him the position where he could use this to be productive as well. And so maybe you're a student, kids. You're not out there working in the coal mines right now, and I'm glad you're not. But kind of your work right now is you're being prepared for whatever kind of work God has you to do later on. And the more you learn, the more you take that seriously, the more that you're going to be better prepared for that. And not only for your work in the workplace, but you're going to be able to be more equipped for your family and your community and your church as well, too. So, so training and, and developing, developing character, these are all things that tie into this. There are a lot of lazy people in the world. How many of you have seen the Pixar movie WALL-E, the little robot in, in space? If you've seen that, uh, there are these people on this spaceship that have been living their generations after generations, and they don't have to do any work. They sit in their floating chairs, and they float around eating their Slurpees and watching screens. Their muscles have atrophied, and uh, they're, they're pudgy, and they, they uh, just can't do things because they haven't been trained. They haven't had to work, and they, they don't work. We don't want to become like that, like those people in Wall-E. You know, there's some people, though, that lazy in a different way. They can be fired up about things that they care about, things they want to do. But when it comes to earning their own living and being responsible for that, uh, well, that isn't on their list. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say to us about uh, the biblical work ethic. Let me give you some of these Proverbs. In Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, it talks about the ant and the, the slug, comparing them. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Saying, don't be like a slug. You want to be like an ant. Those little guys know how to work. They're carrying these giant breadcrumbs and doing everything they need to do, and they're stocking up. They're preparing. So later on, winter comes, they have the things that they need. And this proverb is saying that's the way that we need to be working hard, preparing in advance, taking that kind of responsibility. And if we don't do this, it says poverty is just going to come upon you. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says this, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. So the sluggard thinks that he doesn't need to do the work ahead of time of plowing, but thinks that somehow there's magically going to be a harvest there, but there's not. In Proverbs 26, there's, there's a few of these verses about the sluggard uh, in a row. Some of these are great. Proverbs 26, 13. This gives the excuses that sometimes people give for why they can't get out there, why they can't work. Get this. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. What does that mean? This is saying that Sometimes lazy people will make any excuse they can. I'd go out there and I would try to, you know, work and, and get a job. But, you know, there might be a lion in the streets. Who knows? So I, I just can't do that. Too much risk. And so I'm just, I'm just going to 
Stay inside. Verse 14. This is great imagery. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. Talking about lazy people lying in bed, just like, think of a door, just, and this is the slugger, just, all he does is, is turn back and forth as he's sleeping there on his bed. And verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wearies him out to bring it back to his mouth. And just eating, this, all that this person can do, that's, that's so much work, wearing himself out. As Guinness in a book he has called The Call, a book on calling, points to three main reasons that he identifies in our modern society why we are inclined to sloth, to being sluggard, being like a sluggard. One, he says, is a philosophical reason. It's that many people have lost faith in God. And when you lose faith in God, you start to think, well, nothing really matters. What does it really matter what I do? Things seem less worthwhile because they don't point to anything that's really ultimate. The second reason he gives is cultural. That many people today can be inclined to sloth because we live in a society of people that came before us that worked hard. And because of their hard work, it's easy for us to be kind of lazy. The hard work of people before us now gives us a life of convenience and ease and comfort. Guinness writes this, the world produced by such dynamism in the past is now a world of convenience, comfort, and consumerism. And when life is safe, easy, sanitized, climate-controlled, and plush, sloth is easy. You know, it's like the people in WALL-E. Somebody else built all this stuff and this technology on the spaceship. And so they can take it easy. They didn't build that but they can live this life of, of comfort and ease because other people worked hard. And the last reason he gives, he says, is biographical, that there are some natural points in life where we can be prone to lose a sense of the worthwhileness of the worthwhile. I do want to say this before we move on because we might ask, well, what about those who can't work? And obviously, when we talk about this, this isn't about babies, this isn't about... Uh, little kids, and there can be uh, different points in life where that's not going to be uh, expected anymore. Um, although, even when we think about society, uh, young people in biblical times, they were given work to do. I'm not advocating for, again, kids to be working in the coal mines or, you know, uh, children in factories or something like that. But think about things you can do to start to promote a good work ethic even in your kids. Think of where was David uh, when, when he was found? He was out tending the sheep as this young boy, but he was, he was put to work tending the sheep. So there is something to be said of, about that. But there's somewhere you would, people that, uh, because of age, or because of disability, uh, actually can't work. And that's a different situation, obviously, when it's, when it's a matter of it being uh, genuine and for real. The Bible has a lot to say about our call to help those who truly can't work to earn their living, and especially the blind or uh, various situations. But the Bible does distinguish between those who can't work and those who just won't work. There's a big difference. And this kind of leads us a little bit into the next point I want to make is this. The Bible 
does not teach socialism. If we look at these passages, we're going to see that uh, this idea of socialism, this is not what the Bible teaches. If you grew up before the end of the Cold War, uh, you probably grew up knowing that socialism was a bad word. Maybe you saw more examples, and sometimes are presented today, about how socialism had and communism had an effect in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Although there's still, when we look at other nations, you compare North Korea to South Korea, vast difference. And how things are going in uh, places like Venezuela. But now we have more and more people that seem enamored with this idea of socialism. And politicians that, to one degree or another, sometimes either flirt with it or some openly claim to be socialists. Now let me say, why do some people sometimes claim that the Bible teaches socialism or even communism? Sometimes people will point to Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the, uh, the, the church, and many people had just uh, came to faith in Christ after Peter's teaching, and in Acts 2, 44 through 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And some point to that and say, see, that's, that's basically communism. That this is what the Bible wants us to do, to not have any of our own possessions, but we need to just get of our, rid of our possessions and, and give it all away and just share equally. And saying that this is what the Bible is teaching for Christians. I'm going to argue that that's not what it's teaching, that it's not teaching socialism or communism. Socialism is basically the idea that the government should own and manage companies, shouldn't have private companies and businesses, big or little, but they should be taken everywhere by the government. Whether it's healthcare or manufacturing, the government should run all of that. The government should be our, our employer. And you can have different degrees as far as a little of that or all the way. And communism, if you have that, there the government not only owns all the businesses, but they own all the possessions. Everything that you own, your car and everything, uh, belongs to the government, and the government just lets us kind of use what belongs to them. And also this idea that everything should be shared equally, and everyone just works according to their ability, and that we can just share and share and share. How about this? Kids. To kind of describe this to you, let me explain it kind of this way. Uh, not long ago, uh, you may have gone trick-or-treating. And this year, because we didn't have trunk-or-treat, I went throughout the, the neighborhood in Middleville and did some trick-or-treating. Two of my kids wanted to go. So I went with uh, Joel and Zoe, and we went trick-or-treating. And at the end of it, they had kind of a nice haul of uh, Halloween candy in their uh, little pumpkin-shaped buckets. And they came home. Now, I said two kids, my other two kids, decided not to go. And that was okay. They didn't have to go. Um, they could have if they had wanted to, but they decided not to. They weren't sick or anything like that, just decided not to go, which is fine. But let's say when we got home, the two kids that went and, and got their costumes on and did this and went trick-or-treating and, and walking for that time and collecting all this stuff, we said to them, well, it's great that you have your baskets, they're um, full of candy, but now what we command you to do is we need to take all this candy and spread it out, and we're going to divide it equally. Not just between the two of you, but 
also with your two brothers that didn't go trick-or-treating. Now, if we had done that, would that be fair? How would you react to that in your heart? Is that something that you think they should have been forced to do? Let me just say, it would be different if they wanted, if they had this candy and decided, hey, I want to share some of this. I know I don't have to. I know the others didn't go trick-or-treating, but I want to share some of it. And voluntarily, they did that. And it also might be a little bit different, too, if, let's say, one of the kids had really wanted to go trick-or-treating and just came down with a really, you know, bad cold or something and couldn't go out and do it. And we said, you know what, let's, uh, let's help them out. And they decided, yeah, let's do that. And it might be a little bit different, but should we have forced them to share equally with those that decided not to go? And that would be more what this socialism is teaching. And you also have to wonder what would happen next year if we made that our policy. There are many passages in Scripture that do talk about sharing with others. Okay, there's a lot. 1 John 3:17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is saying that one of the things, if you have God's love in your heart, it's going to propel you to want to share with others. Okay, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not against sharing with others. That's very biblical and very, very good. But this is a, a voluntary sharing. This is sharing from, from the heart, not the, the government coming and forcing uh, you to have to share with other people, taking what you have and, and distributing it. That's a different thing. Also, Christians were not required to give away everything. Yes, in Acts 2, we saw some Christians there that were so moved that they started selling their possessions and, and giving it away and sharing things in common. But that is not the principle that the Bible teaches has to be the way that everything is all the time. And in fact, I would argue it would be unwise and ultimately unloving if we did that. Let me give an example. Let's say you're a Christian businessman and you have worked many years to and put in a lot of money and a lot of risk to make a small business. And let's say you're a business now, you have a bunch of employees, you have 20 employees. And because of your business that you have going and you work hard to try and treat them fairly and to do what's right and to be, uh, run your business with honor and integrity, and because of your business, there are 20 families that are able to put bread on their table. Would it be wise and loving if this Christian business, if this businessman, let's say, becomes a Christian and becomes convicted and says, I just got to sell my business and just distribute all the proceeds and just go from there? Okay, there might be some temporary good that could be done, but couldn't it be the case that by keeping the company going and running it well, that it's doing more good in the long term, both with funds that he could be distributing uh, to, to good works through his proceeds, but also continuing to keep 20 families able to provide for their families through the work done from that company. There's a difference also between giving away your own money on one hand to help others and merely voting for the government to take away other people's money to help others. It's been said that the problem with socialism is that you always run out of other people's money to spend. 
And actually, studies have shown that conservatives, who oftentimes uh, want and vote for less taxes in government programs, are actually more generous uh, with their own money to helping those in need uh, than those that vote for more taxes and bigger government programs. They often tend to be much less generous with their own money. So the Bible is, is definitely for uh, sharing and caring for other people, but it doesn't teach socialism. Let me give you a sample of other verses that go against these ideas of socialism and communism. The Bible teaches a right to private ownership of property. I mean, you think of just the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Okay, that only makes sense if you can own your own things. If everything is just common property, well, you can't really be stealing it from somebody else. And the Bible holds up the good of receiving the rewards and profit of your own work. In Luke 10, 7, Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. In Psalm 128, 1 through 2, it says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Notice it says part of this blessing is being able to eat the fruit of your own labor, what you have earned. And similarly, kind of with this, in, in Micah 4.4, 4, this is about life in God's perfect kingdom, the ideal. And this was actually famously quoted by George Washington. It says this, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Being able to sit under your own vine, under your own fig tree, in peace and safety. If you want to dig into more of these principles, I would commend to you, there's a little book by Wayne Grudem called Business for the Glory of God. But rather than getting into a lot of technicalities, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a parable. And this is actually a classic parable. This version was actually adapted by President Ronald Reagan years ago. And it's called The Little Red Hen. And I think this makes a point. Once upon a time, there was a little red hen who scratched about the barnyard until she uncovered some grains of wheat. She called her neighbors and said, If we plant this wheat, we shall have bread to eat. Who will help me plant it? Not I, said the cow. Not I, said the duck. Not I, said the pig. Not I, said the goose. Then I will, said the little red hen, and she did. And the wheat grew tall and ripened into golden grain. Who will help me reap my wheat? asked the little red hen. Not I, said the duck. Out of my classification, said the pig. I'd lose my seniority, said the cow. I'd lose my unemployment compensation, said the goose. Then I will, said the little red hen, and she did. At last the time came to bake the bread. Who will help me bake the bread, asked the little red hen. That would be overtime for me, said the cow. I'd lose my welfare benefits, said the duck. I'm a dropout and I never learn how, said the pig. If I'm to be the only helper, that's discrimination, said the goose. Then I will, said the little red hen. And she baked five loaves and held them up for the neighbors to see. They all wanted some and in fact demanded a share. 
But the little red hen said, No, I can eat the five loaves myself. Excess profits, cried the cow. Capitalist leech, screamed the duck. I demand equal rights, yelled the goose. And the pig just grunted. And they painted unfair picket signs and marched around and around the little red hen shouting obscenities. But when the government agent came in, he said to the little red hen, You must not be greedy. But I earned the bread, said the little red hen. Exactly, said the agent. That's our wonderful system. Anyone in the barnyard can earn as much as he wants. But under our modern government regulations, productive workers must divide their products with the idle. They all lived happily ever after, but the little red hen's neighbors wondered why she never again baked bread. Socialism seems like it's a good idea. It's been said that um, anyone at the age of 16 who doesn't think socialism is a good idea doesn't have a heart, but anyone at 26 who still thinks that socialism is good doesn't have a brain. Socialism seems like a good idea, but it doesn't work. And socialism is not built on a biblical worldview. Socialism might work if there was a world with no sin. Okay, if it was a continued even or heaven and everyone would just all work for the common good. But it doesn't work and it doesn't make sense in a world full of sinners. Instead, the Bible promotes the idea of, of work and connects that with dignity. And it, it's love to give people the dignity of work. Whereas socialism too often becomes a system of handouts, creating dependence and creating control. Because remember, whoever feeds you controls you. Finally, our last point here, good work benefits other people too. We're not arguing here about being selfish. That is not the goal or the point of this message. In this series, we're talking about that, that work and money and business, they actually are all fundamentally good things because God designed them for human beings to fulfill the creation mandate and to contribute to human flourishing. This is true both of the earnings that we make of this and from the work itself and the result of the work that we do. However, work and money and business, they, they are good things, but they're good things that can be put to bad use by sinners. And the Bible warns us of this a lot. Money is a tool. It is. But it's also a tool that can be used for great good or it can be a dangerous tool that can hurt people as well. Scripture warns over and over again how money can become an idol. And we have to watch out for that. So there is a sense where you can err on one side of the other, or the other. That you can err on being idle, meaning you're not working, or you can err on the side of making money and work into an idol. An idol in the sense of like idol worship, something that is more important to you than God and his calling that he has for us. So if you have God as your main thing and you're following him, work and all of this and your, your subordinate calling to work and to earn money in this, you're going to view it in a different way as a tool to do God's good. Not all work is good work. It's not good work if you are promoting sin in your work. 
if you're being oppressive to others, or if you're being just if you're being just plain selfish in your work, you're just doing it for you and for the things that you earn, and everything just ends with you. Ephesians 4.28, I think it's very helpful. And if we look at this, there's kind of three different levels of uh, three different mindsets that we can have. And we need to realize this and make sure we're not just stopping in the middle here. It says in Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Unpack this. Realize this. Do you see three levels here? The bottom, we're not supposed to be like the thief. Okay, someone that just takes from other people. They don't contribute. They just drain and steal. You could have different versions of this too. I mean, think of like uh, the Vikings. Okay, they go around. They didn't make stuff. They just, you know, use violence to, to rob and take things from other people. And so a thief may take things through uh, stealth. A Viking may do it uh, through violence. But this can happen other ways too. Someone just being, being a mooch can use manipulation or other means to just, to just drain from other people without contributing in at least the ways that they could. We're not supposed to be like this. But level two isn't enough either. Level two would be just mere self-sufficiency. Yes, the Bible says, and Paul said in Second Thessalonians, work to earn your own living. But we're not just to stop there, just to be that, okay, we, our goal is not to be a drain on other people and to be self-sufficient, but that would only be level two. Level three that we're supposed to shoot for is to work to take care of yourself and to have resources that you can use to benefit other people, that you can share with those that, that have needs, that you can give strategically uh, to others and to organizations and to people and in what ways are this is going to be strategically put to good use or using it to uh, invest or build a business that it, it has more people employed. There's different ways to use resources to do more and more good. That's what we're to aim for. If you're interested in this, a great book to look at is called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor in Yourself by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Because sometimes people give in a way that may be well-intended, or sometimes people give to others in a way basically just to make themselves feel better, but it ends up backfiring and doing more harm than good. That sometimes handouts can just enable, or sometimes different causes aren't really doing the good that we hope they would. We want to be smart. We want to be strategic. We don't want to just enable destructive behavior. And yes, I think there's something true that there needs to be a, a safety net for those with genuine needs, but people need a safety net, not a hammock. Through all of this, what really helps us is to remember that work is a calling. Tim Keller reminds us this. Remember that something can be a vocation or calling only if some other party calls you to do it and you do it for their sake rather than for your own. What is going to be your attitude Monday morning? 
why is it that you work? And ultimately, who is it that you are working for? No, none of us are saved by our good works or any kind of work. The only work that, that saves sinners like me and like you is the finished work that Jesus Christ performed in our place, that he lived the perfect life for us, that he died on the cross to take our sins and, and rose again for our justification. It's his finished work that he did in our place that we receive. It's, for us, it's grace. It's a gift received by faith alone. That's the only work that saves us. But God has called us to do good works. And that includes good work. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the teaching and instruction that you've given us. You've created us to work, and that is a good thing. And Lord, to the ability and the situation in life that you have placed each of us in, let us seek to, to work, to be industrious, to do what we can, whether it's for a paycheck or whether it is helping those around us in other uh, important ways, Lord God. We ask that you would help us not to be uh, people that are idle, Lord God, but help us to contribute to others, to be able to um, work and do honest and good work that not only takes care of ourselves, but also can be used for the good of other people and for your glory. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for the work that you did, because that's the only work that can save us. And so we give you praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.